The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. This week, a couple weeks following Thanksgiving and a couple weeks before Christmas is that weird period between holidays where everybody's kind of coming down off of one and ramping up for another one. Uh, We kind of get lost in the fever and the fervor of it all. And I just wanted to kind of take a moment and and check in with everybody. Um, One of the things I've let slide in my life over the last couple months is some accountability, some personal accountability for, you know, health nutrition, sleep. I'm trying to get back on track with that and I need to get back on track with that and it's a tough time of the year to do it. I think that this show that I have coming up after this intro, I think this show is is a good one to, to have on now because I needed to hear some of it. I need to take care of some of the basics in my life. I need to clean up how I'm living, clean up how I'm working out, clean up the the harried and hurried parts of my life where I'm not giving enough attention. And so I started to do some of that. One of the things I've done is I, I reached out to uh, my therapist and I asked her for, for a reference on, on some psychological testing. We'll get this whole answer of this ADHD thing out of the way for me. It's going to take a bit, but I'm, but I'm started down that route. Um, I'm also trying to talk more. I need to, to get back in for another therapy session. And I need to admit that, that I need it as much as anybody. One of the things that's tough to do is to take your own advice. And I sit here and I do this show and we talk about therapy and we talk about talking. Uh, we discuss making changes. We discuss, you know, how you stay healthy, how you maintain a, a, a positive mental health. And then I don't do some of the things that I preach. And I need to do a better job of my own accountability, holding myself to the fire. I need to talk more. I need to express myself to those in my life, those closest to me, those around me. I need to let people know where I am. I need to check in with people and find out where they are. And that has slid a bit in a, in a, I don't know, I couldn't even put a time frame on it. It just, it has, it's, it's kind of gone by the wayside and that's, that's my fault. It's all my fault. And I can, I can change that. And that's where, that's the route that I'm, I'm starting to take right now. In addition, I need to start making some changes for myself when it comes to the way I'm eating, the way I'm working out the way I'm recovering. You know, back in June, I decided to stop drinking for a year. It was a challenge and I'm six months into it. I guess, well, Christmas Eve will be six months. It hasn't been as tough as I thought it would be. There have been a few times where I wanted drinks and those those times felt kind of overpowering, but, but I didn't give in. And so I have another six months to go and we'll see what happens after the year. You know, that's just an example of what you can do when you just make a decision to do it. I got away from some of the smaller things, like cold plunge. I did it 
religiously for for a number of weeks there and then it kind of fell by the wayside when i when i had to go and spend some time in pennsylvania at the end of my mom's life uh i'm back into that i just i'm sitting here in a pair of sweatpants and a hoodie and and i'm warming up after a cold plunge this morning and it was probably mid 40s in the water and i spent a few minutes there and and it was damn cold Uh, it's a shock to the system but it's a good shock to the system and so now i look to the future with 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 things like cold plunges and saunas and eating well and working out and and organizing how I want to run this show, organizing how I want to release the show, how I want to move the show forward with all the parts and pieces that I've I've talked about and I've shared with a few people, the things I want to do, the things, the the grand ideas I have. And I know I can't do it all at once. I can't I can't take care of all my personal life at once. I can't take care of all my show life at once, my professional life at once. So I had to take small steps with everything. And so then I worry that I'm going to frustrate people. I worry that I'm going to frustrate myself. And I need to be patient with myself. And I need to understand that, that people will also be patient with me. I mean, let's be honest, people have already been patient with me. Maybe I've I've been given more patience from people than I ever deserved. And and it's time to repay some of that, I suppose. And the way I can repay it is by taking that personal responsibility, taking some, yeah, taking charge of some things and not sitting back as much. So maybe pushing forward with, with a few items and, and not waiting for something to come to me, but more pushing and more more grabbing for what I need or what I want and realizing it's not always selfish but it's all but it's just necessary at times I um I'm faced with a daunting task this week and I've bounced around these ideas in my head of how to do it and how to craft it and how to give it and and I'm worried I'm nervous and I'm scared all the same time um I need to write a eulogy for my mom and I'm not sure where to go with it. I have so much I want to say about her. And then I have some stuff that I just want to keep for me. Um, I want to craft a eulogy that that will honor her and kind of encapsulate her. I, I don't want to... It, it, I don't know the framework for eulogies. And so I'm kind of learning that. And that's a weird thing to learn. I don't want to learn it. I never wanted to learn it. So here I am reading a couple of eulogies, trying to fit my thoughts into those and and i think that for me to do it i I have to scrap that idea it's not my thoughts don't fit into the framework of others all the time uh it's not something i've always been comfortable with the fact that i don't always think like others so i need to sit down and i need to just start writing but again it's a it's one of those things that i just don't want to do but i do want to get i do want to have that chance to to honor her with with the words and so at some point in the next day or two I'll start that process and I'll just start writing and I'll spew spew out some thoughts and some memories and some anecdotes and I'll try to tie her her 80 plus years on this earth together to present to people and then I'll do what I ironically think is one of my greatest fears and and i'll stand up and i'll and i'll read it to some to a group to a room of people family and friends everyone that knows me but i'll still be nervous i'll stumble over my words 
I'll break down in tears a few times and hopefully I'll get through it. And then I think at that point, that healing needs to start in earnest. I think with that, it will start to really close a chapter. So that means we're, we're looking towards opening more chapters, right? Writing our, our, our next chapter. And what a perfect time to do it with the new year coming around. So in January, I'll come back. I'll take a little bit of a break, like I said, with the show. I'll work on some show stuff. I'll work on some stuff for myself personally and professionally. And I'll rest my brain a little bit and come back in January, kind of refreshed, hopefully with, with a little bit of a, a new vigor for it. And uh, we'll kick it off and, and see where we go from, from there in the new year. Again, I just want to thank everybody for, for tuning in, for, for supporting me, for reaching out in those moments where, where I kind of needed some words. I always think it's very odd that, that people happen to reach out at just the right time. Like, like somehow they intuit that I need to hear something. And so I had a few people reach out to, over the last few weeks and just, you know, little short notes to say, hey, we listen. We like what you do. It's important to us. Keep doing it. And kind of just some, some motivation that I need. I've been very grateful for that. And it's been, I'm honored to hear those words. Let's move on to the show. Welcome to episode 94 of the things we all carry. Today I'm joined by sisters Lauren and Renee. Lauren and Renee are both nutrition and health coaches and they go by the term of biohackers and you can find them on Instagram under at biohacker babes and that's what they do. They talk about biohacking, they talk about health, nutrition, fitness, um, everything that you can think of that is going to benefit you and change you for the better. The things we talked about, we got into their backgrounds. We got into the, where they went to school, why they why they wanted to biohack. Turns out that their father is who they would call the original biohacker. And you know, they, they were introduced to, to this at a young age and they grew up with this. And so they, they, they were taught this importance of experimentation and individualization so from that individualization and this uh, experimentation and, and searching out for, for, the, for the edge, I guess, for what's going to optimize your health and wellness, their podcast, The Biohacker Babes, and I'll read this straight from their bio. It says, aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. So the things we talked about on this show this week was we started with some the basics and what you can do before you even start biohacking we talked about gut health we talked about continuous glucose monitoring saunas red lights cold plunges and we talked about exogenous ketones fasting breath work um hrv and and what uh heart rate variability can do for you and that feedback and then we actually get into a, a, a little bit of a discussion on, on plant medicine which i think we want to continue on to later date and maybe make an episode of that on its own. We talked about psilocybin and, and how it can, it can help you in, in your physical and emotional journey. It, to me, this was a fascinating conversation because it's, it's science and, and, and 
it takes a break from talking about these heavy subjects that we always talk about on the show. It came at a good time for me, is what it did. Came at a time where I, I don't think I was looking forward to another heavy show. And so this one fills the bill for me. It fits it perfectly as, as a chance to, to kind of get lost in a two-hour conversation. And it was informative, it was fascinating, and it was engaging. And I can't thank them enough for coming on and, like I said, spending two hours of their day with, with me and the audience. And I hope you guys find some value in it and you, you reach out, you follow them, and, and uh, you learn what you can do beyond the basics with biohacking. So you guys get out there, go enjoy yourselves, and do something for yourself. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Feel free. Okay. All right. So if you guys are ready, let's do this. All right, welcome back to The Things We All Carry. And today I have the biohacker babes on, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves so I don't screw up too badly. I, I tend to do that. So I'll say good morning and, or good afternoon, and thanks for joining me. And why don't you give us a quick background of each of them? Oh, well, thank you so much for having us. And I, I love the opportunity to introduce ourselves. We just emceed an event, and I was like, oh, I really, I want to make sure that the guests or the speakers get introduced the way that they want to. So honestly, really appreciate that. Uh, we are sisters. People think it's just like a, we're gal pals where we grew up together. Sisters, we have a podcast called The Biohacker Babes. We are both nutrition practitioners, or you could say at large, we are health coaches, which a lot of people have a big question mark around. Like, what does that mean? It's anything that can optimize your health through hormones, gut, digestion, blood sugar, better sleep, better mental capacity, stress management, that list goes on and on. Um, and my name is Lauren and I live in New York City. We grew up in Maryland, but I've been in New York for over 20 years. And um, we're biohackers, which we can explain what biohacking is, but I'll let Renee jump in. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I'm the other half. <laughs> Lauren's sister, Renee. I live in Las Vegas now. I've been here five years. Um, still an East Coaster at heart, though. And yeah, I think a little bit more background. I mean, Lauren and I, we were exposed to biohacking at a young age because our dad, we call him the OG biohacker. We had like an infrared sauna, PEMF mat, red light therapy, all these things when we were kids. Didn't really know what it was all about. Just thought our dad had some interesting toys around the house. But as <laughs> ballet dancers growing up, we had you know, we always had some kind of injury, some inflammation, and our dad would be to the rescue with one of his devices or some homeopathy <laughs> or some kind of supplement. So that kind of like laid the foundation for us to be open-minded and curious about what other options there are when it comes to health optimization. And then we both went off to college. And although I went to Florida, Lauren went to New York, we had similar stories in that we had our own health issues. And that made us kind of circle back to what else can we do? How, you know, traditional medicine personally didn't have the answers for me. I had chronic fatigue syndrome, and that led me to become a biohacker myself. So I got really into nutrition and sleep optimization, stress management, um, and then some of these fancier technology and devices to, to optimize our health. And so you said Florida. Where did, where did you go to school? I did my undergrad at University of Tampa. Okay. And how do you... What qualifies you? What's, what schooling do you have to have to be a biohacker? 
I know it's a silly question, but I'm curious. It's the, the school yeah. of curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. At first, I know there's no certification or, you know, or school body that gives you that that title. But biohacking is really a, a way of life. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. Um, we can explain biohacking has many, many definitions. We could explain ours, but to be a biohacker, you just have to be willing to experiment on yourself and and want to optimize your own health potential. Okay, so you get you, what's your what are, what what undergrads? Do you have master's degrees? Where where are we at in school? Yeah. So well, I got my master's in nutrition because okay. I was just so curious. I was reading all these nutrition books and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my career. And my dad was actually the one that said, to quote him, he said, what is your Friday night essence? I had never heard this before. And it was basically, hmm. if you're home on a Friday night, you don't really have any plans, what would you do in your spare time? He said, well, I would be reading nutrition books. My nightstand at the time had you know 10 books high. And he said, that's what you need to go back to school for. So I went back, got my master's in nutrition. But really, nutrition is like a small piece of the pie of one, of everything when it comes to biohacking and health optimization. I love that mm -hmm. term. Yeah. The Friday, yeah. Night, Friday night essence. I love that term because it makes you think, all right, yeah, what would I do with, with when I have that time just to myself? Yeah. yeah. Really shines through what your uh, curiosity is or what your passion is. So, Lauren, what's your degree in? So, I actually went to school for dance. I moved to New York to become a performer. And so I started my career dancing in dance companies and on Broadway. And through that, I wanted to optimize my physical body. So I became a personal trainer. And that was the beginning of my health journey is personal training. And then I soon realized that not all the answers were found in the gym, that we actually had to pull in other pieces of the puzzle through health op optimization. So I got certified in a few different uh, different bodies. But the Czech Institute, where Renee and I actually together became holistic lifestyle coaches, and then I also became a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. So I learned how to script and run labs, understand biochemistry by looking at lab values. And, and that was like a big foray into the biohacking, like using data to uncover blind spots and really kind of get to the root cause of what could be driving our, our symptoms or our ailments or our challenges from day to day. So um, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, and then that has split off into many different other interests. I do prep and integration for plant medicine work as well, but it's under this whole uh, metabolic health coaching umbrella. What is a quick definition of holistic nutrition? I'm curious. I consider it just, well, holistic or whole body approach. So, you know, not thinking that it's as simple as, I don't know, calories in, calories out, but like what the nutrient density of the food? How is it affecting all aspects of your body? How are other aspects of your body affecting what you are eating and how you're digesting and absorbing the nutrients? So to me, holistic is like whole body approach. Yeah. Cool. Take. I, I, that was going to be my guess, but I, you know, I, I'm sure that I'll have people in the audience just curious. And so I wanted to clarify it and thanks. Um, yeah. Before we go much further, I want to ask a question about music because music's a big part of my life and, and it's kind of w with me wherever I go. And if I'm, you know, cooking in the kitchen or at the gym or driving down the road or whatever, I usually have something on and I'm always looking for something new. So Renee, what was the last song you heard? Oh, I actually, um, I love music too. It just, it makes me feel alive. I, I really love EDM. Okay. It's just like I can feel my heart beating with the music. 
And so I think the last thing I listened to this morning while I was doing my makeup, I was kind of getting um, oh, awake. I'm on the West Coast, so I'm three hours behind you all. But uh, Elderbrook, I'm trying to remember which song it was, but Elderbrook is one of my favorite DJs at the moment. I was looking because I'm not a big EDM person, but I found I found a um, I'm trying to and you'll pardon me. I'm I'm going to stall for a second because uh, I found this this EDM version. And now I'm not going to find it. Now uh, I'll find it while, while we're while we're talking. I think you'll like it. It was an EDM version of of um, an Ozzy Osbourne song, I believe. So I'll find it, but it was, it was kind of, I normally, it's not my genre, but I was like, well, actually that one was good. I'm throwing that on my playlist. So I'll, I'll check out what yeah. you suggested. Nice. Lauren, what about yeah, you? I what love was... when they remake, remake oh, yeah. songs. Yeah. yeah. I love, I love it. Mashups are, are kind of, I get into it for some reason. I just nerd out on them. Um, <laughs> so Lauren, what was the last song you heard? I don't think I played any music today, but I went to a Lauren Hill concert over the weekend. So I'm going to nice. say her singing was the last thing that I heard. She okay. is on her 25th anniversary tour of The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which came out in 1998. Yes. And I was obsessed with that album. I tried to change my name to the spelling of her <laughs> name with the Y. I tried to convince all my friends. I don't think it really stuck, but um, <laughs> that is the last thing that I heard. Funny. And I, I really love live music. I mean, I always have music on in the house, but and actually, I make my own music. I turn everything into a song. I have this strange habit of if you say something, I'll, I'll find something. I'll make a song out of it or it'll trigger a memory of a song. I'll sing that. But um, live music is just so inspiring to like yes. watch an artist in their mm -hmm. speaking of essence, like in their essence, like living and breathing this and communicating like their soul to us. You know, that sounds a little woo, but um, no, I, I love, don't think that's, I love yeah. that feeling. Love that feeling. Actually, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Billy Strings, um, mm -hmm. I, he's a he's a neo bluegrass performer, but he his live shows are apparently just off the charts. It's just an immersive kind of thing. And um, that's going to be the next concert I'm going to. And that's in a couple of weeks in, in Baltimore. And I can't wait to 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 experience that because that's what it is. You could say it's kind of a woo thing, but he gets so into the music. Just the whole crowd is just in, you know immersed in his in his immersion in his music. And it's just it's. I've heard it's a it's one of those out of body experience type things to to witness. So I'm I'm excited. Oh, so cool! That'd be fun. Before yeah, I go, El much Elderbrook too. I, if you ever have a chance to see him live, I think a lot of people think like, oh, EDM DJs, they're just like hitting a button on their computer or something. But man, he is like playing the piano. He's singing. He's dancing. He's DJing. Like he does it all. It's like a full performance. Cool. I like it. I like yeah. it. Before before I forget, it was it was actually Iron Man redone by a, a a group. I think they're brothers, and they go by Yoki Y O O K I E. So that's who that's who I found. Somehow they came up on my TikTok algorithm, and I'm, I I don't know why. I don't know how because I like I said I don't listen to to EDM. So, but I was happy it did. Okay, cool. so now we got that out of the way. All right. Fun. I think we kind of covered it in your introduction, but why biohacking? Why is it important to you guys? Yeah, I think we both came up against health challenges and were not given answers by the traditional medical model. Um, so we were running into walls and biohacking was a way to not run into that wall, to look in different directions and explore different options and pathways that could help optimize what we knew was like our true health potential. Like we're not meant to feel bad and our medical model at no fault of theirs is more concerned with treating disease and preventing death rather than preventing chronic issues. 
Um, and so we really live in like the prevention optimization world where we think the ceiling is so high and that we can feel as amazing as we want to feel every day. And so biohacking was a way to explore that potential and to find alternative ways to make ourselves feel best. I would say, especially as females, the biohacking is really important because a lot of the research that's been done on everything from nutrition, exercise, sleep, nervous system has been done on males. And so there's not a lot of bio-individual help, I would say, to simplify from the research and the literature, which is then trickling down into the mainstream medical model. So um, it's really about finding our own answers and solutions and, and really raising the bar on what we deserve to feel. I never, never thought about that, you know, and obviously I'm coming from the male's point of view. I've never thought about the, the fact that, that, you know, it's so male heavy in the research and, and development, even I'd imagine that, that you kind of have to blaze your own path as a female. Yeah. Well, women yeah, are tricky. Actually, Our hormones yeah. change every day. And so to put us in a research lab is, is much more expensive and <laughs> there's just more variables. So of course it's difficult, but uh, it's happening more and more. I'm sorry, Renee. I was going to say, I think until, I forget when it started, but until 1993, women were actually not allowed to be a part of research. A lot of what Lauren said, like our physiology is very complicated. I know people, you know, men joke, women are so complicated, but like physiologically we are. Um, but they also were concerned about doing certain studies on women if they were of reproductive age, because oh. certainly if a woman gets pregnant during a study of some sort, you know, there's, yeah. there's a potential lawsuit, I guess, there. So Women were just not allowed to be in the research. Or even worse, or, or lose a pregnancy or, or prevent it from a pregnancy because of the research, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's where the, you know, the N of one experimentation comes in. I think also just like the bio-individual component. Like people want to say, this is the best diet. This is the best workout. Cold plunges every day, right? But we're right. all so unique. I mean, Lauren and I, two years apart, we're pretty similar genetically, age, everything. But we still have to do things differently when it comes to our biohacks. And I think the only way you're going to figure that out is by staying curious, being you know aware of what's going on in your body, finding that intuition of what your body is telling you that you need and, and figuring it out for yourself. Like there's no offense. I don't think there's any doctor out there that's going to ever get to know your body as well as you know your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are the basics that we as first responders or people in general should be doing before even consider biohacking? Because obviously biohacking is more of a fine tuning, correct? I think it can be more broad. I actually, okay. you know, I think that probably most people, even that are listening to this podcast, are already biohackers in my definition. Because my definition is if you've done anything that could potentially alter your biology, you're a biohacker. So if okay. you've gone out in the sunshine to increase your vitamin D levels, that's a biohack to me and it's free, right? So I would say most people are probably already biohackers, but certainly like the foundational things that are free, we always want to start with. And that's where I think the ancestral hacking comes in. It's like, what did our ancestors do? I think our ancestors were the first biohackers. Getting your feet on the earth, grounding, getting these negative ions that the planet is giving us, fresh air getting outside more, getting in the sunshine, you know, circadian rhythm, which I know is really hard because you're working 24 hours on, 24 hours right. off. Circadian rhythm disorders are huge in your, in your industry. So how can we get back in tune with our planet and what, our nature, what the nature is providing us for free? 
Yeah. So and I think the, our ancestors were biohackers, but of course it wasn't called biohacking then because right. it wasn't, we didn't need to step out of our norm. It was just so integrated with the nature and the rhythm of the sun. But now our modern lifestyle is really designed against us with so much indoor light. There's pollution, mm -hmm. obviously careers and jobs that take us out of that normal cycle. So the biohacking is an interruption in that path that we've like slowly been conditioned to fall into. It's an interruption so we can say, wait, I could possibly feel better. And so it's not a nuance. It is the basics. It is prevention and optimization. It's really a lens that we can look at all of these like basic pillars through. Something like sleep. We all know like roughly around eight hours of sleep is good for us, but that could be different for all three of us right here. So biohacking would be, well, let's look at some sleep data. Let's do some subjective feedback uh, tracking to see how do I feel going into bed at this time versus this time? Can I make it more efficient? That's the biohacking to make sure that your sleep architecture and design is designed for you. Goes for supplements, goes for food. I mean, we could take all of these kind of big uh, opinions and trends out there, but chances are intermittent fasting is not right for any of us. Or like, what time of day do we break our fast? How do we break our fast? Those are the like nuances that do fall into the foundational pieces of all health pillars. Well, I can say from, from 10 plus years in a fire service, I can tell you that as firefighters in general, we're not taking care of the basics before we start doing cold plunges or red lights or saunas. Um, so and I that's that, okay. We could talk well, about why that's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, and I was going to say, cause the pillars that we talk about and, and, and I talk about quite a bit with, with, with people that I know and on the show, you know, nutrition, sleep, um, gut health somewhat, but I don't, I don't know a lot about gut health. So I don't talk much about it cause it's, I don't want to come from a, a position of ignorance and, and say something there that's wrong, but, but nutrition, sleep, exercise, and alcohol, I think are the huge things for firefighters and first responders in general. And, and I think that my message to everybody out there is like, you can take all of this into account, but please dial that other stuff in as well, or before, just because I know that I know that a lot of us go home and we start drinking or we eat our $5 meals at the firehouse and, and it's, you know, it's just, it's not the best food in the world, but at least we're eating something. Uh, and the sleep is, the sleep is what sleep is for us. If you look at my Garmin and my sleep data, it's, it's, it's like a roller coaster. So it's, it's kind of, it's all over the place. Even on my days off, it's, it's all over the place. Hmm. So I guess I just want to get those fellow firefighters to kind of normalize a little bit before even going too far into the biohacking. Does that make sense? Yeah, but we could consider like cold and sauna a, a foundational practice. If you think about like our okay. ancestors that didn't have AC and they didn't have, you know, heat in their, their homes, they were naturally exposed to this. And so to me, that is a foundational practice that can optimize our physiology and optimize the nervous system. And like, you're not really overlooking the basics because you have a very specific schedule that you're probably not going to change anytime soon, right? Like you're providing an incredible service to humanity and you've committed to that and that is your lifestyle. So how can we pull in these other modalities to just support the body and help it work better? And I, from our perspective, like the biggest challenges for firefighters are nervous system, right? Being in fight or flight, nervous system yeah. dysregulation, which does has, uh, is implicated with gut health, which we can get to, uh, toxins, right? You're exposed to a lot of toxins and then altered circadian rhythm. So we could pull in these other modalities to just work, make that work better, knowing that 
your foundations are going to look different from mine because my lifestyle and my day-to-day is just different than yours. And that's okay, right? We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. It's just given your challenges and your lifestyle and your preferences and your goals, what tools do we have to pull out of the toolbox to help you help your physiology work better? So what are the fundamentals of gut health? I would say there's like two big categories and Renee, I'll let you jump in, but we want to, we want to prevent. And that would be like reducing offenders, eliminating things that we could be sensitive to, allergic to. um, And that could be bio-individual. That could be something really random, like a banana. And that's why we like look at lab testing or CGM. Or it could just be like processed foods in general. We know that processed foods, um, processed oils can be really rancid and inflammatory to the body. So that takes a little bit of personalization to figure out like what do we need to avoid pulling in? And then sometimes we need to pull other things in to help optimize. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But I would say some sort of fasting is always really helpful to the gut because our body naturally heals and regenerates if we give it the downtime to do that. Um, So getting to know your personal sensitivities, giving it some downtime for your gut to do what it normally naturally is capable of doing. Um, And then I think we have to pull in the stress component because your vagus nerve, which is essentially a big highway that connects your brain to your gut, there's signals, there's afferent and efferent signals going up and down all day long. And we can get into this chicken or the egg situation where it's like, is that fight or flight disrupting my gut? Or is my gut already disrupted and now it's causing more of a fight or flight response, stress response? So we really have to look at all components. But the gut health topic is, is quite a big one, but I would say that's the biggest one, like avoiding things that are offending our gut and then pulling in some of the better things with fasting or certain supplements or enriching our diet with more diverse foods. Like we are microbes, so we actually want a lot of microbes in our gut. The more we can flourish in our microbiome, the more capability we have to respond to the environment. What would you add to that, Renee? I mean, on just on the nutrition topic, I would say it can be very simple and it can be very complex. So I think it depends on where someone is starting. Like you said, you know, the $5 I don't know, fast food meals, it's like maybe all we do is we cut that out and replace it with just something that's whole foods, right? Food that came from the planet, food that our body recognizes as food, not chemicals and additives and processed things. And then once we have a good grasp on that, then we can look at Do we need to tailor our macros based off of our genetics, our gut health, our stress, our physical activity? And then we can keep going further. Do we need to look at lab testing to really fine tune it on a bio-individual level? But I think if you're not, if you're still eating processed food, like that's just number one thing to focus on Mm because we know that that's full of things that are going to disrupt the gut health. And like Lauren said, poor gut health leads to more sympathetic activity and vice versa. So also before you eat, you know, a lot of us are eating in a stressed out state. Can you sit down? This is one of my favorite biohacks. Mm. Sit down and close your eyes. Take three really deep breaths. It only takes a couple seconds before you eat your food. That's just saying, hey, I'm in a safe place. Get that parasympathetic rise and then your body will digest the food better. So I don't care if it's like this raw, organic, healthy, perfect salad or it's five guys. You know, if you're in a stressed out state, your stomach is going to revolt against whatever you're putting in. So you could almost argue that stress management is more important than what we're eating. But again, whole foods. You know, most Americans are not eating a whole food diet. 
No, mm-hmm. not at all. And yeah. if you look at grocery prices now, it's even worse. Yeah. Well, I would add to that, like, it's it's so hard to, to tell someone to do this. Like, it's easier said than done. But don't stress out about the food that you have put in front of you. Like, if that is your only option, you've already made the best choice for you. Don't sit there and be stressed with your meal, even if it is five guys. Like, if that was the best option, like Renee said, tell your body you're safe, get into a parasympathetic and eat it. Because if you're if you chose that and then you're going, oh, man, I shouldn't be eating this. This is bad for me. Oh, God, I could have done better. You're telling your body that it's not safe. And so you're not going to digest well. You're not going to metabolize well. It's going to keep you in that sympathetic state. So obviously, like the food supply is an issue. It's very expensive to get healthy food. Often we don't have time. We don't have the resources. So we're all doing our best. And I think we should keep aiming to do better and better if we can. But once that food is in front of you, the number one priority is to get your body into a safe parasympathetic rest and digest state, no matter what, what you're eating. Is there such a thing as, and I, I guess, well, why you guys were talking because it gut health affects so much, you, you, the parasympathetic, the, the, uh, inflammation. And I, you guys know better than I do. Is there such a thing as, is gut health like the basic to, to health or is there, or is it just a multitude of things that build this, this big base for you? I mean, (laughs) yeah, disease begins in the gut, right? That's a pretty famous quote. And yeah, I think because when we see people with a, you know, more diverse gut microbiome, they can be more resistant or resilient against maybe poor food choices, maybe the stress of life, the toxins that are coming at them. So yeah, I think if we really prioritize the gut and whatever that means to you, because it's going to be a bio-individual plan. Mm-hmm. I think we can see more resilience. And resilience, I'll probably say that word 50 times today because I think for firefighters, resilience is the most important thing to achieve. And like Lauren was saying, adding in the sauna or the cold plunge or any of these hormetic stressors, fasting, certain types of exercise, while they may be the next level biohack, it's still getting to the foundation of how can we be more resilient because you're not going to be able to change your 24-hour on, 24-hour off schedule, your erratic sleep schedule. So what are all the things we can do so we're more resilient to all of those things? And and yeah, a, a very diverse gut microbiome is key there. And the number mm-hmm. one thing is just to eat a variety of food. Most Americans are eating, I think, on average 12 foods per week. Right? Mm-hmm. You go to the grocery store, you grab the same chicken, the bananas, the broccoli or whatever. It's like you're doing the same foods over and over again. Our gut wants diversity. Again, going back to our ancestors, they were eating hundreds of different foods throughout mm-hmm. the year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think yeah. food timing really plays a big role in gut health. So our metabolism, especially our glucose metabolism, is really aligned with light and dark cycles or so circadian rhythm, the rise of the sun, and then darkness at night. So when it is dark outside, our body wants to be producing melatonin so we get that rest and repair, which I know is not always possible for first responders. But we could follow a simple rule of condensing our feeding window and just having boundaries for ourselves. You know, it's different for every person, but having some kind of boundary to give our body that downtime to rest and recover. Even if we're not necessarily sleeping, we can give our gut the downtime from food. That's like a very big mistake that all people make, not just first responders, I think. But we spread our eating over such a long period of time. And so that could be considered a stressor. We're constantly keeping our body, our metabolism, our gut, like, online working, right? If you think about first responders, there's always like 
perceived threats. We're always like <laughs> fight or flight, ready to go. Your gut, your glucose metabolism is the same way. If you keep it on edge, ready to go, and never gets that rest and repair it needs. So one simple hack you could do is just condense your feeding window and you can figure out for your lifestyle and your schedule what what hours that falls within, but simply just con condensing to get the repair. Yeah, it's, you, you, you always, no, don't always, you hear it less now, thankfully, you, you kind of, I used to hear, well, I'm eating for the fire or I'm eating for the work I'm going to do. Well, we don't always get that work. So then you're stuck with that food and there's extra calories and extra whatever in your gut yeah. because you didn't get the work. And so, you know, it, it doesn't always make sense to say that. Mm -hmm. um, you, you keep saying personalized because everything about this is going to be personalized. I mean, everybody's going to need or require something different because we're all very different from each other. Just like you guys said, your sister's two years apart, sh share some genetic material, but you're, you're very different in your approaches. Um, how do you know, how do you get tested about your gut health? How do you know what's good for your gut health? Mm, question. Yeah. I mean, there are there are labs you can do, like a stool analysis, if you want to really do a deep dive. They're not perfect, but I think it can mm -hmm. give you a little bit of guidance if is there a candida overgrowth? Is there are there parasites, viral pathogens, uh, poor pancreatic function where you need more digestive capacity, things like that. I mean, that's kind of like one end of the spectrum. Um the other thing is just maybe get a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. So that's, we think of it as like, oh, it's measuring maybe how much sugar we're eating, right? It goes way beyond that. Yes. So Lauren does a lot of glucose coaching and she can see if someone is maybe reacting to a food, like a food intolerance, food sensitivity, food allergy, or if they're just eating in a stressed out state, their glucose will rise. So I, we always recommend someone to get a CGM for maybe two or four weeks just to experiment and really get to see what's going on in your body. I think that's like the greatest um, opportunity to see what's going on in the body. Yeah. That real-time feedback is really yeah, helpful. And I know that we had CGM on the list of biohacks and, and I'm curious about it because it's something that I've heard for a while now and, and I've been curious about, interested in, but at the time when I first started hearing about it, it was, it was prescription only, I believe. Is it available on, on, on over the counter now? And, and how do you do that? Yeah. So there are several companies that their mission is to give access to a, I'll say, quote unquote, healthy, non-diabetic population. And they are becoming more accessible. You usually have to go through one of these companies where there's a membership, but they'll send you sensors. It's connected to an app. So you can see in real time how your glucose is responding to your food, to your stress, to your sleep. Um, I think over time, you know, the cost is going to come down as as people realize that this is such an amazing prevention tool. For so long, they were only for diabetics, but we know diabetes doesn't happen overnight. You could be pre-diabetic for 20 years. So what opportunities are we missing out on in those 20 years before you get that diagnosis from your physician? And for anyone listening that doesn't know about a CGM, it's a continuous glucose monitor. So it's just a little monitor. It's just like a tiny little filament. It's smaller than, way smaller than a needle filament that goes into traditionally like the back of your arm or you can wear it on your belly. And it's measuring the interstitial fluid. So it's actually um, estimating what your, your glucose is at any given point in time um, and really revealing to see like, what is your glucose doing overnight when we should be in rest and recovery? How is it responding after dinner, you know, it's different for everyone. I have clients where it's like their kryptonite is nighttime. 
For some people, it's like, ah, oh, morning. I can never get my glucose to behave in the morning. For some people, it's just kind of gently elevated all day long. I mean, there's so many different options here and stories that are being told through the CGM. So as Renee said, it's like one of the most fantastic ways to personalize. We can go, oh, these are your optimal feeding windows. This is exactly how much protein you need. This is how much hydration you need. This is going to be the best time for your physiology to do a workout. And then like we get real answers. Otherwise, we're just guessing, right? And we can right. guess, we can run experiments, but I, it's better to cut through the noise and like get some real concrete answers sooner. People deserve that. Do you, do you start recognizing changes in your glucose for, through a CGM in your body? So what I mean is, do you start going, oh, that's why I feel this way now. Now I know that's my glucose. That's not this or that. And so do you start recognizing those patterns and, and then you can, you can kind of remove it and, and say, okay, I, I don't need that now. I know when I feel this way, I've elevated my glucose or, or when I'm feeling this way, I'm, I'm, I'm a little low in my glucose. It, it does, do you find that that starts to happen? Yeah, I would say that's my secret goal for everyone that I work with is that they won't need it forever. It's a it's a drop in so we can really get to know your physiology. Of course, there's always a, uh, an opportunity to revisit the CGM because our bodies are dynamic. They're always changing and like our environment changes. So things may actually change over time. But Renee and I both believe like we don't want to be attached to data wearables for the rest of our life. Like technology is awesome. But what we really want for our clients and our audience is to reconnect with intuition. So, yes, as you said, it's like, can we start connecting the dots and go, oh, right, that's why I'm feeling hangry or that's why my energy is crashing or that's why I just like was super irritable or couldn't sleep. Right. And then we train our body to go, I don't want to feel that. I know what I need to do intuitively to feel better in that situation. Yeah, and I think I liken that to sleep a little bit because uh, I, I wear a Garmin, but I used to wear a, a Whoop as well. And Whoop, I liked for, for my sleep, but then I started, it started to get, I don't know, it, like you said, it, it was predictable. You know, I knew that if I, if I felt one kind of, this is going to sound weird, I guess, maybe I can, if I felt one kind of tired, I knew that it was because my heart rate never came down to where I needed it mm. overnight. Or if I felt a yeah. different kind of tired, it's because I had this restless sleep during the night. And so I, I started to, to be able to, okay, no, I know what that was. And now I know I'm overtraining or, or I didn't train enough or whatever it is. Yeah. Amazing. So I, I kind of, I kind of liken it to the same thing, I suppose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely. It takes some work, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, answers. I wore it for, for two or three years before it got to that point. And, and it, it took me a while to go, wait a second, I'm not utilizing this the way I need to utilize it. And so it was interesting. And once I did utilize it the way I needed to utilize it, I, I got rid of it. So it's the funny part. Great. Yeah. Don't need it anymore. Like that's, I think that's the gold standard, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I mean, I was wearing an aura ring and a bio strap for three years. And then I don't know, it just hit me one day, the bio strap. I felt like I learned what I needed to learn from it and I stopped wearing it. I still wear the aura ring because that still kind of keeps me on track. Right. Um, kind of rewards my good behaviors. You know, okay. you know, sleeping well, not having alcohol, caffeine too late, watching yes. how my workouts are impacting it and then different supplements, how that's impacting it. But the aura ring is like my go to um, to keep on hand. I love it. it and and I've, kind of, I've heard good things about it. Is, is that kind of a gold standard of, of wearables? Well, 
it's really good for, I think, the readiness component. So looking at especially like resting heart rate and HRV overnight, I think the sleep data is pretty accurate amongst the wearables. And then I also just find it's really easy. I don't I didn't really love having this like big bulky strap on my wrist. The ring, I don't even notice that it's there. So Mm -hmm. easier for me that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the sleep metrics are probably the best of any wearable out there. I mean, the gold standard for sleep metrics is polysomnography, but no, we're not going to do that yeah. nightly. And what we really like about the Aura Ring, so it's not really activity driven, where it's like the Whoop or the Garmin, you could measure heart rate recovery within a workout. We're primarily focused on sleep and recovery, which for us, that is the number one pillar. If though if sleep and recovery is not in place and nothing else that you're doing, none of your efforts are going to work as good as they possibly could be. So I think, you know, at least for a short period of time, I think de- data can be very overwhelming to people. And then, yes. you know, that's why you work with a coach or you just like do what some people just do deep dives. Like there's a ton of blogs and podcasts where you can really understand your data. That's really the next big piece. It's like, oh, we have all these numbers. What do I do with it? Mm-hmm. And that's when we do the biohacking, run the experimentation, give our, ourselves time to sit with our data and understand it and try to put the pieces together or this like through journaling or just, you know, I have some clients that like make some crazy spreadsheets, like however your brain likes to interpret these things, do it. And then ideally we can get off of it. So you, you mentioned in, in both of you at some point in that explanation mentioned alcohol and supplements. I want to get into alcohol a little bit because it is very prevalent in the fire service and mm-hmm. we all know, we all know how firefighters are and, and it's alcoholism is a mainstay in the fire service. Um, what it kind of, what is alcohol doing to your body other than making you happy once in a while, but then, you know, making you feel like shit the next day. What, what is alcohol? Why is it making you feel like shit? Yeah, the bad news is that it's a toxin. It's you can't really get around that. It's a toxin, especially a neurotoxin, and it's putting an increased burden, especially on our detoxification organs, so the liver. And I think for first responders that are already exposed to so many toxins, you're just making it harder for your body to detoxify these things. So it just slows everything down. Ideally, like our bodies detoxify well. It should be like a one-to-one ratio. You're exposed to something. Your body detoxifies it. it. It comes out safely. But when the burden becomes higher and greater, and it's getting higher and greater for all of us because our world is so toxic. We have air pollution. We can have polluted air like inside our own homes, actually. Like homes are very toxic these days. And, um, you know, toxins can even come from like negative self-talk. That, I mean, that maybe sounds really rude to some people, but like our liver has to process that. Like yeah. anger, angst, like stress, or that has to go through the liver. Um, So I think there's a lot against us. So I think with alcohol, you're just pouring fuel on the fire. It's inflammatory. It's slowing down our detoxification capacity. And, you know, it's great because it makes us feel good. It has like a slight numbing effect. It's jovial. It feels good. But as you said, you probably feel like shit tomorrow. And luckily, I think there's a lot of amazing alternatives. Like we now have kind of normalized this non-alcoholic state change alternative where there's all kinds of herbs and nootropics and all things in the plant world that we could potentially pull in that still make us feel like that the burden has been lifted. We feel a little happier. It's, you know, maybe I don't know if you can use the word numbing, but, you know, 
kind of a dissociative in that way that I think after a long 24 hour on the job kind of day, you deserve, right? Like you got to get out of that stress fight or flight state, but we can do that without pouring fuel on the fire. Yeah, I, is, I would ask, why, like, why are you drinking the alcohol? What is, I mean, Lauren, you just mentioned a lot of state changes that you're going for. I think one big one is like the dopamine hit, right? We're all humans. We love that dopamine hit. But if that's what we're going for, can we go for a walk in nature? Can we do some breath work? Can we do something a little bit more natural to get a dopamine hit? And then the thing with alcohol is the more you drink, the more you need to get that same hit, which is yeah. why it's so addictive. And um, if it is more of the calming effect where you had a really stressful day, you just, oh, I just need to like turn my brain off and calm down. Yeah. Can we use something like kava or CBD, all these natural plant compounds? And then the other thing is, do you like the taste? Is it the idea of coming home, pouring something in a glass and sitting on the couch and sipping on it? You know, there's something uh, called hop water, which tastes almost like beer, but it's totally healthy, no alcohol in it. So I think find what you want. Is it the dopamine? Is it the taste? Is it the calming effect? And there, I mean, fortunately today, we just have so many options. Five years ago, we couldn't even, I don't think, had the same conversation that we can have no. today. Not with, yeah, not with options. Definitely not. Yeah. It just wasn't, it wasn't there. You could go to a bar and, and they had nothing non-alcoholic for you, except for water or soda. Yeah, right. the mocktail lists are really flourishing. I'm surprised. And I was kind of avoiding them for a long time because I'm like, oh, it's just going to be like a cup of sugar. But right. they're getting better. People are like yeah. bartenders are getting more creative. They're using bitters and herbs and citrus where you're not getting a, a sugar hit and like a spike to your glucose, but you can actually feel like you're enjoying something. And I think that for me, I... I I'm trying a year without alcohol and, and I don't know where to go from, from after that. But, you know, my last drink was at my nephew's wedding in, in June. And, and for me, it's a, it's a, it's something in my hand. I'm a, I was, I am or was a bourbon drinker. And I just like to have that, that feel, that tac tactile feel of something in my hand and I'll read a book and have a drink. And I think that was the hardest thing to, to do without It's like, all right, so what's there? You know, water just doesn't cut it. So it's finding something yeah. to replace it. Yeah. 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 Or like Three Spirit, that's another good brand that kind of tastes like a cocktail. You can pour it over, you know, in a rocks glass and enjoy it that way. And then you actually had a good point. You know, you haven't had a drink since June. I tell people maybe go 7, 14, even 21 days without mm -hmm. alcohol and watch your sleep stats, watch your recovery stats, maybe even journal how you're feeling. And I would bet you're going to feel so much better that that might then motivate you to cut it out. And then if yeah, you are going to drink, you know, maybe it's one on an occasion. And then we can get into the whole discussion of which alcohols, like beer is the absolute worst, right? We're looking yeah. at mold, you know, fermentation, uh, carbs, sugar, yeah. carbonation, gluten. Like that would be like the worst option versus the other end of the spectrum, like a tequila, vodka, gin, like a clear liquor. If you are going to drink, I'm saying there are better options available there. It, you mentioned that it's you you take that drink and you get that that dopamine hit, you know, happiness. But chemically, what's happening after that? Well, then you actually go through a withdrawal. Yeah, even just one drink the night the next day, your body will go through a, a withdrawal. Um, that could just show up as brain fog, headache, fatigue. Um, because it's such an addictive substance. And I think yeah. I, I was going to ask you, yeah, do you, do you feel those, the remnants of that 
almost like a, a kind of like a depression afterwards. Yeah. Like you, you sink down lower and then you, then you, you, it takes you a while to come back up out of it after you've had a night of a couple of drinks. Yeah. And then yeah. the next time, then you need more drinks. So I, how many people listening have had said, I'm going to go out and have one drink tonight. You have that one drink, you get that dopamine hit, and you're like, oh, the second one. Oh, now I want that dopamine hit again. I'll have a third one, yeah. right? And then the night gets away, and you wake up the next day feeling terrible. And and so, yeah, you, your body's just naturally kind of lowering that dopamine standard where you need more mm-hmm. and you need more. Yeah. I mean, it's also affecting your gut, your microbiome, your gut linings. Yeah. It's definitely affecting your glucose. And this is something I see on CGMs all the time. There's this paradoxical effect where people drink alcohol and they say, oh, it doesn't spike my glucose because actually it's competing in your liver for food metabolism. So it keeps your glucose actually quite stable. But if you continue to look a few hours later, especially in tonight, you'll see this rise in glucose. So people are sleeping and they don't they're thinking this whole time like, oh, alcohol is good for me. What it does overnight is it can actually reverse your leptin and ghrelin levels. It elevates your glucose. So the next day, not only you're going to feel like shit because you're tired and hungover and toxic, but you're going to have more cravings. You're going to start choosing foods that are not as good as you want them to be. So it's really this cascade effect that is so beyond just like the typical hangover that we think of. And I know this is like age old advice and maybe it's oversimplified, but if you don't want to even explore giving up alcohol, just drink more water while you're drinking. Like maybe you have one less and have a drink of water in between. Like that will help your liver. That will help your sleep. Like incremental choices like that just to take the burden off. Really, we're just trying to lift the burden just so you can get a little bit better considering your lifestyle preferences. Because I love alcohol. Like I love a cocktail. I'm never going to give it up completely. But I have biohacked a way to fit it into my life so it doesn't destroy my resilience. And that looks different for everybody. Like you have to essentially kind of pick your poison, know your boundaries. But I think if you are interested in these kind of state change alternatives, like non-alcoholic alternatives, we're happy to share some resources there. There's just like so much out that's on the market right now that's like pretty awesome, fascinating and tasty. Like it's a good time to be uh, a non-drinker, I will say. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. Oh, all right. So supplements, how much, this is going to be such a general question and and you're probably going to be, yeah, you might scream at me. How much of these are just pure bullshit? A lot, a lot of them. (laughs) Is there anything out there that you would say that that one's good? These are good. These are what we would suggest. Yeah. I would say there's companies that we trust that have third-party testing that we know have rigorous methods for proving their efficacy and we can stand by behind their labels. Um, yeah, but supplements are really tricky because that's super bio-individual as well, which is why we like to look at lab testing to find out, like, do you really need this? I would say, like, it, there is, like, a general stack that most people need. Ideally, we get it from food, but our food supply has been diminished in quality mm-hmm. and nutrients. So 
you have to eat like so many more vegetables to get the nutrient value that we used to be able to get 50 years ago. So that's where supplements can really come in. Also, we're under a lot more stress and stress robs us of our nutrients. So if you're someone that has a lot of stress in your life, for example, first responders, then we could rep uh, replenish those nutrients through supplements. But we do want to make sure they're coming from third-party tested companies that we know and trust. And then just coming back to the lab tests to understand, like, does your biochemistry really need this? Is there a deficiency? Is there an insufficiency? So on the labels, it'll have like the RDA recommended value. That's not what you need to be optimal. And we're always concerned with optimal. That's only right. going to tell you what you need to not be deficient and be sick and ill, right? So a little bit of a loaded question, but I think there are ways we can personalize it. Looking at your diet, optimizing digestion. As Renee mentioned, like if you do those deep breaths before you sit down and eat, you will actually get more nutrition out of your food. So that's a simple way to need less supplements is just to like slow down and breathe and be in a calm state and digest well. And um, yeah, looking at the lab test, I'll, I'll let Renee jump in. Yeah, I think um, finding a brand that you can trust. You know, we look, we use a lot of physician formulated companies. Like I wouldn't just go to GNC or the vitamin shop and just grab things off the shelf because I mean, they have done a lot of studies where they go and they pull things off the shelf and they test them and it it's not what it says it is. Right. So for sure, there are junk supplements on the market because there's just not enough regulations right now. So if you are going to spend the money, make sure it's the good quality. And yeah, I mean, the basics, you know, maybe just like a, a really good multivitamin, a fish oil that's really clean and not rancid. You know, there's definitely some basic things. And then one that we like to talk about with uh, firefighters is modified citrus pectin. I always like to bring this in just because you are exposed to so many toxins at work. This is a really good one. There's a lot of great research on how it binds to toxins in the body. Um, I think if there's anything else specific, potentially NAD, it's a little bit pricier, but there's some new supplements coming out on the market, making it easier to just take a capsule at home. So you're not spending a thousand dollars on an NAD IV. Um, but that's a really good one for overall burden of toxins, because I always think of like this rain barrel effect. Um, you know, how full is your rain barrel before it spills over? And Lauren, you had said this a little bit earlier. It's like, OK, so you're exposed to, you know, smoke or whatever toxins at work. OK, then you go home. You're exposed to more VOCs in your brand new house or whatever. And then you have that cocktail, more alcohol. Right. And then it spills over. And then that's when we get sick. So it's like, how can we keep that rain barrel as low as possible and then support it through things like I said, like NAD, modified citrus pectin, a healthy diet, things like that. It's funny mm -hmm. you mentioned citrus pectin because I, I, I saw that on your Instagram and, and, and I meant I put it on the list. I hadn't even heard of it, to be honest with you. I had no idea what it is. And so I was going to pick your brains about that a little bit. So since you've mentioned it already, let, let's get into it a little bit. What What, what is it? What in how does it affect these toxins? How does it, how does it take them out or, or remove them? I, I, I'm, I'm completely ignorant to what it does. Yeah. So it falls in a class of binders, as we call them. I like to think this is like our cellular housekeeper. It goes in and essentially like sweeps up the toxins and the trash and it will safely escort them out. So it's going to put them in the trash bag and it's going to take the trash bag out into the trash can. Whereas if we just have these toxins from alcohol, from smoke, from anything else that we're exposed to, and we just leave them kind of free to roam the body, they're going to keep burdening the body. 
Um, but we also don't want to just like clean house and and eject them not in a safe way. So something like citrus pectin is a selective binder where it's going to go in and seek out those toxins, but not at the same time pull out all of your nutrients and helpful like beneficial microbes, vitamins, you know, what else you're putting in your body through supplementation. It's very selective. Kind so we like could a take up bath water type thing. Yeah, we don't want to just like sweep everything like you're all of you get out of here. <laughs> right. We want to make sure we're selectively choosing the things that could be harmful to your body. And that's what citrus pectin does. It's selective. And how do you, is it, a, is it a, just a capsule form or what, what, what is it? Yeah, it comes in capsule Typically. form, powder form. There's even some tablets. Um, I like, I really like this company that makes this product called Pectisol. They specialize in modified citrus pectin. So um, if you go to their uh, website, you can also look at a lot of research on what they're doing with that. But um, I kind of like the tablets for people that are like traveling a lot. It's just easy to like pop one in, let it dissolve in your mouth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it actually tastes pretty know. good too. And it tastes pretty good, citrusy. Okay. I don't know why it hasn't gotten the fame that it deserves. Maybe it will in the next couple of years. But yeah, I'm kind of glad. I like when supplements don't get the fame they deserve because that means that all their companies are not going to try to take advantage of this market and make money off of a cheap product like right now it seems like only the companies we really trust are making it like let's leave it that way like when people realize that people needed more magnesium suddenly everyone was making magnesium are we taking the right form of magnesium like where did that come from do we really need it are you wasting your money so i kind of like these um you know these uh these star key players that are hiding in the corner i would say zinc is another one like that Uh, we also could lean into nutrients that are really helpful for stress if we're going to lean into that component right nervous system dysregulation maybe the vagus nerve needs some support our body the fuel that our body runs through very quickly when stress are b vitamins magnesium and zinc so that's a great one to test on blood chemistry but we often can get that through a good quality multivitamin like renee said but I would just assume, based on the lifestyle and the job responsibilities, that there is a, an increased burden of stress. So most likely running through those minerals too, our body, that's like definitely fuel that just gets burned so quickly. Um, min- so minerals, a good quality multivitamins, specifically with bees, zinc, magnesium, and then something like a citrus pectin, which can bind to the toxins and get them out safely. And you mentioned NAD. Now I have questions about NAD because I know it can be, it can be pricey for the, for the IVs. And when I, when I first started hearing about NAD, I knew that I, I heard or I read that there was some question about the, the availability of it in your body when you used it in, in the pill form. Uh, has that improved? And is there, is there something out there that you can, you can actually benefit from with NAD without using the IV? Yes. Definitely. A lot has changed in the NAD space. So when the research was first coming out showing that NAD was helpful for, I mean, cellular repair, cellular cleanup, uh, cellular energy, all of these things, people thought, oh, let's just put NAD in a capsule and we'll swallow it and yeah. yay, we're done. Um, you're right. It doesn't work that way. So then they discovered, okay, well, what if we use the precursors like NMN and NR? That does seem to work. So a lot of the supplements out there now, they might say NAD on the front, but if you turn it over, it's actually NMN and NR or one or the other. And even further research, I'm going to say Dr. Uh, Nicola Nicola Condon, I think is how you say her name. 
she is this amazing scientist from Ireland. She is studying NAD full time. And she's actually taken the even deeper dive on how to increase NAD. And she's able to put it into a capsule. Um, so I think that's really interesting research. But the IVs, I just, they're just not, I don't think they're worth it. Okay. They're so expensive. They're time consuming. You have to do them often. I mean, most people aren't going to do a $700 four-hour IV every week. It's no. just, that's not going to happen. So so it is exciting to see there are products coming out that are something that you can just have on your countertop and take once a day. Um, and her product specifically, actually, she's doing a lot of research using true diagnostics, biological age testing. And she found within four weeks of supplementing that, they were able to actually reverse people's biological age by over one year. Hmm. Um, and it's do I need to explain biological age or do you feel like that's... I think that maybe we'll touch on what NAD is and okay. biological age, because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, it's one of those things that people might not have heard of before. Yeah. Um, so on the biological age side of things, so we have our chronological age, which is based off of our birth date on our driver's license, right? Biological age is actually looking at how fast you're aging. So ideally, we want our biological age to be less than our chronological age. And there's a lot of great testing out there for that, too. Like I said, um, I think true diagnostic is probably the best one. But this is a great way to see if all the things that you're doing are actually slowing the aging process. You know, we can't we're not going to stop the aging, but if we can slow it, that's the goal. And so you can use the test to see, is my diet, exercise, sleep, stress, all of this making a difference? Is the NAD supplement making a difference? And so, and then back to NAD. So NAD levels naturally decline after the age of 40. And once our NAD is gone, we are gone. So we want to keep NAD up as, as long as we can. Um, like I said, it's really working at the cellular level. So if we can optimize cellular health, then we see, you know, this cascade of better organ health, better system health, better whole body health, right? It all starts with the cells. And NAD is what fuels the cell. So we can also increase NAD in the body through high-intensity interval training, uh, strength training, fasting. Um, so there are some somewhat free ways we can increase NAD in the body. But if you wanted to supplement, yeah, I think there, there's some good options there. Yeah, I think the the lifestyle options are really important because if you're going, oh my gosh, these IVs are so expensive. Like a lot of time we jump to what can I spend money on to support this in the body? But oftentimes it's like, what do we need to avoid, eliminate, or what are just like some foundational lifestyle things we can do to support our body's natural healing abilities? Like that's what we love the most. Our body can heal if we put it in the right environment and give it the right substrate or compounds. And a big part of that is like eliminating the things that could be decreasing our capacity to produce NAD, which is essentially like our energy. Like how do we transfer energy uh, within the body? So like Renee said, like exercise, heat can do that. Fasting can do that. So before you spend a lot of money on it, it's like, look at your lifestyle things. What can you make slight adjustments and edits to to just help the body naturally do it? I first heard about it and, and I don't, I'm trying to remember where I heard about it. It was, it was on a show probably four years ago. I first heard about NAD supplements or NAD infusions. And, and I was like, okay, great. Cause I started firefighting at an, I was older. I was 44 when I started firefighting. So I'm 54 now. And I was, and it's one of those things like, well, how do I get the, how do I hack that? You know, how do I, how do I stay competitive with, with 25 year old firefighters? And it's, it's, it's not easy. And so I, I, I look for some of those things, but I'm also trying to just 
lay the the groundwork at start at that basal level with with nutrition and sleep and and you know cutting out things like alcohol and and shitty food but mm -hmm. I, I i tried nad for a while and i was like well then i saw the research i was like well it's pointless and then it kind of went away from my <laughs> vernacular until recently i started seeing that it might be more available now so it was interesting it's, i wanted to ask though specifically about that a little bit yeah, there's some cool ways to get it. And I think there's a lot of debate on do we need to do the precursors, which ones. But I would say, like, do a biological age test and let's also line it up with your blood chemistry and see, like, how well is your body keeping up? Maybe you don't need it. Maybe you need a little right. bit. I don't know. It's like, let's get some answers from your physiology before we just spend a lot of money on this thing that we've heard in the research and everyone's talking about, you know? Yeah. So everybody's and, wondering, and alcohol, all right, when Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say alcohol actually depletes NAD. So yeah. if you're going out and drinking and then spending $100 on your NAD supplement, like, it, you know. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. It save a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and everybody's kind of wondering when we're going to get to actual hacking. And we've talked about it all along. That's, that was, you know, I, I kind of had this idea where like we set this framework and then we get into these biohacks, but it's biohacks all the way. All the way. And, and the so way. That, yeah. I like this. So um, we touched... <laughs> quite a bit on CGM. So, so I, I think we've kind of, kind of discussed that enough. Let's talk about sauna some, and, and what are you guys seeing? What are the benefits of, of sauna? And, and are you, are you preaching infrared? Are you preaching the typical sauna or what, it, what is it you're, you, you support? Hmm. I think any sauna that you can get access to is better than nothing. Absolutely. I think mm -hmm. there's, you know, a lot of benefits to a dry, like traditional finished sauna. What I like about the infrared is that we get the light component. We get the color spectrum and frequencies. Um, and also we can uh, we can allow the heat to penetrate deeper without overheating. I know when I go in a dry sauna, I'm like, I can't breathe in here. Where in the infrared sauna, I can actually jack the heat up much higher and get that cellular stress. And it's good stress. We want that cellular hormetic stress and reap the benefits of the higher temperature without like suffocating is how I feel sometimes in a dry sauna. So um, I would probably pull for infrared, but I think just sweating in general is just so hugely important. Like the skin as a way to detoxify and endless benefits there. I mean, it improves cardiovascular function, endothelial function, can reduce blood pressure. Um, we're mobilizing toxins out of the body, um, can be great for glucose. That list like goes on and on. What, el what else would you put in that category, Renee, of benefits? Yeah, well, to add to the detox, so actually with infrared saunas, if you can get a full spectrum, I think that's ideal. So you're getting near, mid, and far infrared. There's different benefits for each one. But with the sweating in an infrared sauna, when they test the sweat in studies, they actually find heavy metals, lead, arsenic, mercury. So that's pretty wild that you're sweating it out. And I don't know, I know, Lauren, you mentioned like the dry sauna. I can lay in the dry sauna and just be miserable and not break a sweat. <laughs> I just lay in there. I'm like, is the sweat ever going to come? It doesn't. For the infrared sauna in 10 minutes, I'm like, whoo, it's like releasing. So for me, I just feel better with that, but also cardiovascular benefits. So we kind of call the sauna like a, almost like a parasympathetic workout. So you're sitting there, right? Not like moving around and you're getting the cardiovascular, similar cardiovascular benefits that you would get from a cardio workout. Also immune function. So we see with the release of heat shock proteins, this is a great boost for the immune system. Um, another thing that, you know, first responders definitely need. And then also just the resilience to heat. 
So there, we can also talk about the benefits of cold, but I think putting your body through these hormetic stressors of heat and cold, it makes your body more resilient to be able to go to work and you know do the things you have to do or just to be alive on this planet. So many Americans are just in their you know 72 degree house and then they go sit in their car and it's all temperature controlled. Yeah. And then they complain about, oh, the weather's so hot or the weather's so cold. It's like, yeah, because you don't have any resilience to that change in temperature. If you think about our ancestors, they survived in all kinds of weather naturally. They just had that resilience built into them. But today we, mm -hmm. we need to actually like practice that to build it. Yeah, comfort is definitely killing us slowly. I have a friend that is always comfortable, just seeks comfort. And um, we went to Austin where it's just insanely hot. She never goes in the heat. She got heat stroke from one day in the heat. It's like, well, of course, you haven't conditioned your body to be here. And so it's not right. just like, how do I not get ill? But how do I use this as a stressor to like train my nervous system? And Renee said, train my resilience so that it's not so shocking and stressful in the body if and when you accidentally are put in that environment. So the opposite of that is cold. Yeah, kind of so same what do, thing. What, do you, what is the cold plunge bringing out for us? I think cold is definitely more uncomfortable for most people. Yeah. I would say like if I yeah. take a poll, like more people are going to choose the sauna over the cold plunge, yeah, right? any day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a much more condensed stressor, right? Like you don't yeah. need to be in the cold plunge for more than three minutes where the time, the duration and sauna is much longer. So of course, yeah. it's going to take longer to build up that like, oh, I hate this and I want to get out feelings in your body. Uh, but cold is the same. It's the perfect environment to train and condition your body to handle stress. Like if you can get into cold, which is, mm. I, I don't know what to say if it's unnatural. I mean, we don't want to be cold and shivering and uncomfortable all the time. But if you can get there and control your breath and tell your body that you're safe, you're training your nervous system to be able to respond for those moments where you're in a, a, a place or an environment that you can't control. So I would say that even more than sauna, that's a great place to train nervous system resilience, practicing your breath, telling your body you're safe. Um, and then we get this flood of benefits after, same as heat, it kind of turns on the body to be able to enact those natural healing abilities. Um, you know, you can read about a lot of benefits, like activating brown fat, which is great for your metabolism. Um, it really helps to dispose of extra glucose in your body. Uh, even amazing things for people that, don't tolerate cold. Like if you have rain nodes or seeing incredible things where you actually expose yourself to cold, you can, I don't want to use the word heal, but potentially make that a much better experience for you where the rain nodes is not as severe anymore. Um, so again, yeah, it's like short bouts of discomfort actually kick in these natural healing abilities of the body. And we have greater immune system, greater resilience. Our stress tolerance becomes so much higher. And with cold, it only takes a couple of minutes of being, you know, insanely miserable. <laughs> so the way I understand it, and this is a very rudimentary understanding, the cold plunge, does the benefit come from the fact that you, you, you sink yourself into this water or this ice and um, the, the blood pulls away from your extremities, correct? It's going, it's going to protect your vital organs is, mm -hmm. is my understanding. And that's what mm -hmm. we do if we, if we get, find ourselves submerged in cold water in a lake or something, same thing. It goes to protect these vital organs. You get out and you start this slow warming process and the blood flows back into the extremities. And now it's this, this is, it a, is it oxygen or nutrient rich blood that's coming back to the extremities? Is that where the healing is coming from? Or am I misunderstanding that? 
Uh, that is part of the healing ability. Part of it is training the nervous system to not panic when something is uncomfortable. But then there is this whole physiological response where we get increased circulation, like blood delivery of nutrients, um, redistributing the blood to rewarm the organs. And like the worst news people don't want to hear, but it's the truth. You don't want to falsely warm your body up. You want to allow your body to go through that process. So if you're doing like a hot, cold, alternating therapy, you don't want to go back in the sauna as good as that sounds and feels. Yeah. You do want to like be in the cold and let your body naturally get you back to that normal state. So, so you jump out of the cold plunge and you put on a pair of sweatpants, a hoodie and some socks. Is that, is that, is that too warm? Probably not. I'm thinking more like, don't go right in the sauna. Don't like plop yourself in front of a fire. Okay. <laughs> um, a hot tub. Yeah. Like let your body naturally warm up. Uh, something also that you could do is after cold is do a strength training workout because of, of that increased circulation. Once you get out to all of your muscles and your periphery, we're seeing like increased strength potential in workouts. Okay. And actually, I've tested this myself. We have this really cool machine called the ARX, which has metrics for strength. So you can see exactly how you're pushing eccentrically, concentrically. You can see your your volume. And whenever I do cold prior to that, my stats are just through the roof. Um, so really interesting way to stack your exercise and your hormetic stressors together. I wouldn't do that before endurance work. You do want the body to be like fairly warm before you do cycling or running. And I know we talked about it a little bit beginning before we started recording. I had a very personal question to ask you about the cold plunge. I, I destroyed my ankle way back when. I won't even admit to how long ago it was. Uh, I had a couple of dislocations and numerous fractures in my right ankle and I had an internal fixation done on it. Um, it is pretty much just frozen in place. It, I have very little movement on it. I have no side to side. I just have a little bit of up and down. Um, but I noticed some increased pain in there and I'm wondering, does it have an effect on old injuries, which is more negative than positive? Is there any research to that that you know of? Are you asking, would it be harmful to use cold at this point? I'm not, yeah, harmful or is it, is, yeah, I guess I am asking that. Yes. I think if you're going for like a full body immersion, like I wouldn't leave that body part out. I don't think it's actually going to do harm. But um, I think if it's an old injury, probably chances of the cold being the modality that helps your ankle are probably less likely. I mean, there's so many things that happen, like so many adaptive processes that the body goes under to keep you safe after an injury. And actually, a huge part of that is the nervous system. If you've told your body or you told your ankle it's not safe to move laterally, it's going to keep you frozen in time because it doesn't want you to get injured again. And so I think we would have to address the nervous system component. And there's, there's ways to do that. Like there are devices we could use. It could just be like a meditation where you're sitting with your ankle and telling it like, this is okay. You are safe. You are free to move. You have to do some mobilization techniques. Um, maybe even go in the sauna and get it warm and then do the mobility stuff. So I don't think that the cold is harmful. I just don't know, like, once, like, those tissues have kind of adapted and your nervous system has adapted, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't avoid it, but I don't think that's the thing that's going to take you to the, the next step in healing. So I guess as long as I, I don't think I'm doing damage to it and 
that's kind of the question yeah. I had. And this is, this is a very selfish question. I'm using my own platform to a- answer the question for myself and nobody else. Oh, really we do it. We it, do so. it all the time. <laughs> What's, why we have a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's also why you biohack, right? So yeah. you still have yeah. very personal problems. All right. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think of where to go with cold plunge. I know there's, it's a very short window. Is there a, is there a temperature it needs to be at or under? And there's there a, you said time, you can do a very short window of like three minutes in, and what would be the ideal setting for a cold plunge? Well, there's so many ways you could do it. I like the full immersion because that's where you get like the emotional nervous system benefits. Like a cold shower is not going to take you into that place of like, am I safe? Am I not? Am I panicking? Um, You know, there's a lot of research out there and I think I don't even fully understand it, but my understanding is that even something as short as 30 seconds in a cold shower can produce benefits. But I think it really depends on like, where is your edge? Where mm-hmm. do you start tipping towards discomfort? We kind of want to find that sweet spot between like completely stressing out the body um, and and being too comfortable. So I would I would say to find your edge, whether that's in a cold shower or the full plunge, which I think for a first responder, where it would be really beneficial to train the nervous system to be like cool as a cu- cucumber in these conditions. That would be awesome. Um, other ways to do it. Here you just put ice in your bathtub if you want to. That's yeah. that's your jam. But I think probably more benefits from the full immersion. What would you say, Renee? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I, Lauren, you would probably know the answer. What, what about temperature? Like I know sometimes you're in 50 degrees, which is pretty easy for you. Sometimes you do 35. Is that, again, a personal thing of where your spot is? Yeah, I think, again, it's like, where is your edge? Like, for some people, the idea of 50 is like, oh, oh. hell no. <laughs> uh, that's mm-hmm. Some people just have a higher higher tolerance. But I know some, like, cold experts out there that, that are, like, 33 degrees or bust. Like, you're wasting your time if you don't. But, I like, if it's adding a slight stress to your body, and then it's like we have to address how much stress is your body already dealing with, right? This is a stressor. It's a hormetic stressor. So used acutely and strategically can create new stress, positive stress in the body. But, you know, if you're a female that is autoimmune, has thyroid issues, and you're responsible for your five kids and your husband and full-time job, like your whole day is just stress, probably not a good idea to add more stress in that sense. Um, So we're always like, more concerned with minimum effective dose. Like what is the least amount of hormetic stress you can do for the biggest rebound effect? So, and that's really a personal question. So if you're going to get in the ice, get in the plunge, ask yourself, like trust your intuition, let your own body tell you when it's enough. And maybe like more for the male population, but don't try to outperform the guy before you, right? It's not a contest on time and duration. It's like, what is your body really asking for in that moment? And listen to it. It's, it's funny you, you say that. It's, I, I wonder if you were watching us at the firehouse because we did it as a crew. And, and of course, the first guy sets the standard and everybody wants to go, oh, I did two seconds more than you. So whatever, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not going yeah. to say anything, but I did go longer, you know, and it was, it's oh, always it's that a way. hard thing. So, That's a hard oh, thing. Yeah. yeah the yeah. challenge is to like, do you always in anything, yeah. right? It's oh, like, yeah, definitely. How do we not care what anyone else did or think? Right. <laughs> Sounds good to say you don't care, but that's not yeah. true. Everybody cares. No, totally. So totally. on this list of firefighter hacks from, from a post, one of your posts on Instagram and you had cold thermo and I'm, I'm assuming that was cold plunge or am I mistaken there? 
Yeah, cold thermogenesis. Okay. Yeah. The next one is exogenous, and I mispronounced it because I can't speak English today, ketones. Where's the benefit there? What is it doing for us? Uh, exogenous, which means exogenous. Out, outside Thank of the you. body. Something we're pulling I, into the body. I know how body. to pronounce the word, by the way. It's just... It, it's a me. lot of letters and X's yeah. are weird. Yeah, it's exogenous versus endogenous, something your body naturally produces. Right. You want to share about ketones, Renee? Yeah, I mean, ketones, this kind of goes back to some of what we were talking about with like metabolic health and maybe using the continuous glucose monitor. So we want to be metabolically fit, especially when you're under a lot of stress. You know, with your shifts, you want to be able to tap in and say, hey, I need to burn carbs for fuel or, hey, I need to burn fat for fuel. And that's where fasting can be really beneficial, right? It's teaching your body how to burn fat for fuel. And most Americans today, their body doesn't even know how to tap into the fat reserves. It's just like carbs, glucose, you know, every two hours, give me this fuel. But through fasting, we can, you know, like I said, train that. Because if you're out and you're working, I don't know what your shifts are typically like, but if you're out for four or five hours and you don't have access to food, you need to be able to burn that fat for fuel. Otherwise, you're going to get brain fog. You're going to be lethargic. You're going to get tired. Not ideal in that work environment. So number one is how do we train the body to burn fat for fuel? Then that's when we get endogenous ketones, and that's what's going to fuel your body. But exogenous ketones is a fancy supplement where we can add ketones to the body to get the same, somewhat of the same benefit of using the ketones for fuel without forcing your body to be in like a fasted state or on a ketogenic diet. So, you know, you can take it in powder form, capsule form, something like that. And it allows you to actually like extend maybe like a fast or a long work shift where you don't have food, something like that. It's also great for helping your body to dispose of glucose, like put the glucose where it needs. It takes it out of the bloodstream, which we don't want too much glucose in our bloodstream. It's very damaging to our vessels and our cells. Um, so ketones can be really helpful if, if you're struggling with glucose metabolism. Also, since we talked about alcohol, like non-alcoholic alternatives, there's a lot of ketone drinks that would be great as like a state change alternative. There's one company in particular called Hard Ketones. And they've like reformulated a few times because ketones themselves don't taste that great. So it's like when you tell someone like, just take the ketones, it's like, oh, this is, we're not going to be compliant here because it just doesn't taste good. But they've reformulated and right now they have some amazing drinks that could be replacements for a cocktail or a beer, especially in the evening. It's going to keep your glucose really steady, which we want going into sleep. And sometimes we have like this kind of like euphoric benefit from drinking ketones. So they're delicious. There's like a pina colada, a ginger mule. I'm like, mm -hmm. it's a nice, nice alternative. And that slides right into to fasting. You know, and I, that's probably related right there to exogenous ketones, correct? And, and, and you said earlier in the show, I think both of you have mentioned early in the show that you, you find a feeding window. And mm -hmm. again, we're going to go back to that's probably a very personal thing, correct? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. But I think across the board, I say like bare minimum, everyone needs to, you know, I would quote unquote fast for 12 hours a day. Pick at a minimum Including 12 your hours. sleep in there, correct? Yeah, or yeah. Or is so that outside of sleep? Okay. Yeah. So hopefully yeah, you're sleeping, right. you know, eight of those hours. So that should be pretty easy. And um, I remember there was a meme on Instagram. It said, oh, the easiest way to fast 12 hours is to just sleep 12 hours. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, there's a go. great strategy. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So I would just say 12 hours of just not putting food in your mouth. And then from there, that's where you decide, is it a 14 hour fast, 16 hour fast? 
Um, men definitely typically do better with fasting than women um, of reproductive age. Women in menopause, some of them can fast a little bit better. But yeah, it is a very personal thing. And for women, going back to that, if you're cycling, there's certain times of the month that you can fast longer than others. Versus okay. men, you can pretty much do the same thing day after day. Um, for my male clients, I find like a 24-hour fast every week or every two weeks can be like a really good way to boost you know, cellular cleansing, autophagy, things like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. It is, it's super personal. My advice would be to keep the fasting variable. We don't want to do the same thing every day. Like the body responds to changing environments and variables. That's why we do the hormetic stressors like the hot or the cold. And so a lot of people have jumped on this intermittent fasting bandwagon where they're eating the same every single day. And a, a common pitfall of the intermittent fasting is that people are pushing their first uh, meal back so late in the day that then their hunger just can't catch up. So I find actually a lot a lot with male clients, they finally get home at the end of a workday and they're like, ravenous. I just have to eat yeah. everything. And then they're eating until they go to bed. Well, right now, especially with the days getting short, like it's dark by 5 p.m., which I still, I'm like, this happens every year and I still don't understand. Uh, but your glucose is not going to respond as well. Like once the sun goes down, your insulin, which is the hormone that helps respond and really dictates your glucose metabolism, it goes to bed. And when the sun goes down, your insulin's gone. And so if you're eating, most of your calories in that window of time after the sun goes down, you're going to create a metabolic problem. So I would say with the intermittent fasting, you can do it, but don't push everything later in the day. We want to keep it like earlier in the day when the sun is high in the sky and that's when you're having the most metabolic power. So that's just like caution. Don't jump on the intermittent fasting bandwagon without considering like, where are we getting the, the bulk of our calories in the day? Yeah, that's interesting because I always thought of it as, as, you know, intermittent fasting is, okay, well, I won't eat till lunch. And so there, there's my fast where I could, I could flip that, eat at six in the morning till, till, I don't know, four in the afternoon and then fast till six in the morning. Yeah. Renee and I talk about this a lot. It's like, why are we not considering skipping dinner? People are always right. just like breakfast, who needs breakfast? But yeah, actually it'd be better to start earlier in the day. I would say um, a reason to not do that is most people like to have dinner with their family. If you have a yes. family, that tends to be a very social, communal time. Mm -hmm. And I think for kids, it's very important to show them like mom and dad are eating dinner too, right? We're, we're, we're not fasting. Um, but I think there's ways around that. Still, you can put the bulk of your calories, make sure you're getting adequate protein earlier in the day. And you can still eat, but you don't want to just like be ravenous at night and have that carry right. on through the evening. Yeah. What a what about breath work? Most of us are not breathing optimally and not enough. <laughs> uh, breath work is the like most simple way to change your nervous system state. So to go from sympathetic into parasympathetic, as Renee mentioned, like before you eat, but we can do this just like cold or heat, like train our bodies to respond better to stress by practicing our breath. And so that looks different for a lot of people. It could be listening to a guided breathwork session, or you could just sit quietly, like find small intervals throughout your day where you just put maybe hand on your chest, hand on your belly. You want like 360 full breathing. I would say like two thirds into the belly, one third into the chest. A lot of us are, are just chest breathing. Um, and that keeps us in a sympathetic state because it's going to activate like all of these muscles up in like intercostals, your scalenes, your TCM, keeps us in that fight or flight. So we want to make sure that we can really drop and do deep, full 
the exhalation particularly is really helpful. But, um, you know, before spending a lot of money on supplements and fancy devices, like you always have your breath. The trick is like remembering to do it. So um, for some clients, I have them like do little sticky notepads or put an alarm on the phone or have an accountability partner that just puts a hand on your shoulder and says, hey, let's just breathe. Starting a family family ritual, sitting down to dinner. We're all just going to like express some gratitude and take a few breaths before we just, you know, chow down. I think there's a lot of little windows. Um, but yeah, I mean, breathing is how we bring oxygen into our body. And so a lot of us are like missing out on a huge opportunity just to fuel our brains and our metabolism. It's, I, my son was asking me one time about breathing and he asked me, we were watching the Tour de France and he asked me why their bellies look so big. And I was like, well, that's they're breathing. And it's a perfect <laughs> example of belly breathing because here are these guys who weigh 110, 120 pounds and, and, and they, they, they're filling their bellies with air. And, and you realize at that point, that's the way you're supposed to be breathing. Yeah. 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 We've uh, had to Dana, work on that quite a lot. Go ahead. Oh yeah. I mean, as ballet dancers, we're totally guilty of breathing incorrectly, but Jana mm -hmm. Dan Danielson, I heard her say once, it's like, we have gills on our neck now We're humans are breathing like fish. Like we're breathing from here and from our chest like we have gills hmm. but we yeah we need to be bringing it down so i think number one is learning how to breathe and maybe right. it's a breathwork course or an app just to actually learn how to do it mm -hmm. and then it's also like lauren said a great tool for the nervous system and so i had mentioned before we hit record you know hrv biofeedback um yes. that maybe for some people sounds like a fancy thing but it's it's breathing to optimize your heart rate variability that's how simple it is and so fortunately today, we have technology that can guide a breathwork session based off of your personal HRV. And so just by tuning in, maybe it's box breathing, right? In for four, hold for four, out for four, hold mm -hmm. for four. Maybe it's in for four, out for eight. You know, really simple things like that. But that is the quickest way to increase your HRV, which a lot of biohackers are always asking, how do I increase my mm -hmm. HRV? So mm -hmm. in short term, breathwork is the best way to do it. Long-term, also breath work if you are consistent with it. So we all have stress throughout the day, right? That's not going to go away. We can only eliminate so much stress. But how quickly can you bounce back from that stress? So say someone cuts you off in traffic. Oh, gosh, okay. I'm over it two seconds later. That means you're a resilient human being. Your nervous system is responding the way it should. If someone cuts you off and you're up in arms for the next hour and you can't catch your breath, Right. That is an unhealthy nervous system and unhealthy reaction. So long-term doing something like our HRV biofeedback will create that, here we go again, that, that word, resiliency. And so there's a lot of different apps coming out there. Like I'm personally right now loving the Moonbird. It's a really simple thing uh, you can keep in your purse. You can do it uh, in bed before you're falling asleep. But it's measuring your heart rate and your heart rate variability and then telling you how to breathe with it. Hmm. So it is a personalized breath work. Yeah. It's almost gamifying, right? We're we're pulling yeah. in this data, these stats, because for a lot of people, breathwork just seems either too woo or inaccessible or boring or people, you know, we tell ourselves we're not good at it. But when you have an app in front of you telling you, oh, my gosh, my HRV is changing and I just took a deeper breath. Oh, my God, it's getting better. Like you start getting addicted to that better. Right. And people yeah, like really like that. You want to see progress because if you're not gamifying if you're not looking at the data you're like oh i hope this is helping me i don't know and 
the chances of you being compliant with that practice really go down. So that's an, an opportunity to pull in um, a metric like that or a wearable and have the data like we spoke about earlier with the Garmin or the Aura Ring or the CGM. Maybe you only use it short term to see how it's actually affecting you. Figure out when are the biggest opportunities. Like it's wild what you can see with these real time feedback. Like on a podcast, I always notice my HRV drops down because when you're talking, you're on. Like HRV is going to go down. Is that bad? No, but I need to. I need to remember for myself that I have to give myself recovery time on the back end. So you start to notice these tiny little opportunities, and then, like you said, it's like, oh, well, now I know how I feel when I'm going to remember to do that. I'm going to remember to breathe a little bit more during my day. So. For people listening, HRV is heart rate variability, correct? Mm -hmm. And what are we looking for and what, what does that mean? So heart rate variability is a metric that is looking at this, uh, the difference between the successive heartbeats. And so there's different windows between. Um, and essentially, we, we want a higher HRV, though we're not always aiming. The, the honest truth about HRV is there, there's not a normative baseline. It's not something like we can see on a lab test where we know like your cholesterol at this number is good or bad. HRV is quite personalized and there seems to be kind of a uh, an area in which your body will kind of oscillate. But in general, for your patterns and trends, we want to aim a little bit higher because higher HRV generally means higher resilience. So we want that number to go higher. And we do see it go higher with the breath work or, you know, any downregulation practice. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm flying kind of ignorant here. The heart rate variability is the, is the time between or the, how long it takes between. Explain that a little bit more to me, please. Yeah. So your heart's beating. You can measure your heart rate, which is, you know, if you watch a clock for 60 seconds, you can see your average uh, pace for a whole minute. The HRV is measuring like every window between the heartbeats, which is going to change constantly, right? Like sometimes the heartbeat's okay. a little faster, sometimes it's slower. And so it's pulling in metrics and measuring each window of time. And it's taking that average. Right. So the okay. metric that we're looking at is in milliseconds. It's actually, if you, it's quite dizzying, honestly, which is why we rely on these data wearables to just simplify right. it into one number for us. Um, but it's, yeah, it's measuring the successive difference because your heart rate is always changing. And does that correlate, that correlates with, with, with pulse your, or your, your, your rhythm is correct? It does, but you, yeah, you would need an HRV wearable. You, it's not something that you can calculate on your own based on your heart rate. Is that what you're asking? Well, yeah, but I'm saying is like for someone whose resting heart rate is is 60, their HRV might be lower, where someone whose resting heart rate is 42, that HRV is going to be higher, correct? Um, it doesn't correlate quite like that. It's okay, that's what, the adaptability. That's what I was Right. Yeah, it's the adaptability of the heart rate. It's like, how can we adapt to different environments and stressors? So we should be able to be resilient, right? That's kind of the theme of this conversation. Resilient. So when we're under stress, it's going to, you know, be really fast and it can come back down. It's the recovery. So we want that flexibility. Mm. That's the variability okay. piece. It's can we respond to the, the changing environment and be variable? Variable is a good thing. Okay. So it's that this uh, recovery after tension. Say that again. 
it's kind of the recovery after a tension, after something's been, your heart rate is elevated and you're bringing it down. It's a, is that that's their variability. You want that, you want that number to be higher and that's showing a better recovery, correct? Yeah. We just, we don't want it to be the same all the time. Okay. Yeah. We, we want to be see, able to change. Yeah. Um, when they're looking at HRV, when it's almost like a steady pace, like a monotone, not a lot of variation, we can actually see an increased risk for heart, a heart attack. Sometimes okay. they can actually predict that. So if an HRV is really, really like not variable, then we can actually see that risk. Um, yeah. And then overall, higher HRV is linked with less stress, less anxiety, less depression, less mood disorders overall, and less insomnia. Yes. I suppose reason. we could liken it to like flexibility or mobility. Like if you're not very flexible and then all of a sudden you've got to like reach for something, you're like, oh, I pulled a muscle, right? We're training our body to be able to go a little bit higher, go a little bit lower and respond. Yeah, I was going to say, for some reason, it kind of just clicks in my head. So it's, it's more about the adaptability. Yes. All right. Yeah. yeah that's Perfect. A good word now, for now, now for some, it, I'm, I'm a little slow sometimes, so bear with me. Yep. Uh, oh, we've been that. researching HRV forever, and I'm like, right. it's it's taken a long time to understand it. It's a very, very complex metric. All right, so I think the last thing we have on the list is is probably the the third rail in some in some areas, and we're going to talk plant medicine a little bit. And anybody that's followed me from Instagram or the podcast will tell you that I, I preach plant medicine because I think it's I think it's the future for 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 a number of things. I think that we can. We can create some recovery, both emotionally and physically through plant medicine. Excuse me. And so where, what are we talking about when we say plant medicine? Well, it's a, it's a, a big world of plants. There's a lot of different substances that people are using in, you know, health optimization protocols and journeys. I mean, there's a million different applications. So we want to be selective in which compound we're working with because they all do different things. Um, I primarily work with psilocybin, which is mushrooms. Um, but between Renee and I, we've experienced different compounds for different effects. And Renee can share. Um, we both have had like some pretty profound experiences that were quite life changing. Um, reasons to use plant medicine. I guess how much does your audience already know about? I, you Pulling know what? I, I'm not sure how much they know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have I have some I have a pretty good background in in in, you know, I've read the periphery of everything and I know the mechanics behind it. Um, I don't know what my audience would know, to be honest with you. I've not discussed it too much on the show. They've heard me mention it, um, but it's not something I've discussed in depth. Okay. Um, so I'll talk primarily about psilocybin just so we can be specific. And that's what I work okay. with the most. Many different applications or um, reasons why people would want to use this compound uh, essentially what it's doing in the brain is creating neuroplasticity. So we're talking about adaptability, yep. um, creating more neuroplasticity in the brain is a really good thing because that means that we can adapt and our brains can get stronger. Like we're not just like falling into this age decline. We can actually improve our cognition and our, our brain health over time. Um, psilocybin, many people come into it as an alternative to antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. Um, it's a more natural form and actually has more lasting benefits. Um, similar, actually, to the way that we spoke about wearables, where we can go into a protocol, like a short-term protocol, and ideally get everything that we need, and then we can move on for, from it. 
Whereas if we're taking an antidepressant, anti-anxiety med, we probably are going to be on that for life. And that happens quite a lot because a medical model doesn't do a great job with following up or listening to the patient. And so you could just be put on this thing one day and never ask another question and just stuck on it for life. Um, and that's kind of a rabbit hole about what those things are doing to our body. Some people really need them, but now we're in this world of we could explore like plant compounds like psilocybin to actually create neuroplasticity in the brain. And depending on what you're seeking, if it's less anxiety, less depression, some people come into it because they just want better creativity, better brain function, more clarity. We could be looking at old traumas, current traumas, but what psilocybin does in the brain is it amplifies our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And so it becomes a form of therapy where we can sit with our bodies and get curious about why we have certain triggers, certain uh, thought patterns. So just for example, if we are someone that loops and ruminates on things, like we just can't let go of something that has happened to us, there are particular strains of psilocybin that can help us sit with that and and go in a different direction. I actually just explained it to a client this morning. You know, Roombas, like the vacuums that automatically like, so, you know, sometimes like the Roomba will hit a wall and it like doesn't know how to turn around. Or you be like, right. like over and over again. What psilocybin does is it tells the Roomba like, oh no, you could turn and go in a different direction. Like there's more possibilities here. And so in that case where we kind of ruminate and get stuck, it removes the unstuckness. It shows us other opportunities and pathways. That's just one example. Um, if you live like in a more depressive state, like always thinking about the past and it's really hard to get motivated, there are strains that are very uplifting and energizing and actually are very action oriented. There are some that are really awesome for just expanding your creative potential. And that was like such a big um, learning journey for me with plant medicine is that I was stuck in this narrative for like a good maybe more than a decade of my life where I was like, I'm not creative. My true self knew like, no, I'm creative. Like I grew up as a performer. And at some point I got stuck and this narrative took over and I didn't believe in myself. And there was a lot of self-doubt and felt like I couldn't think outside of the box. And what plant medicine did for me is it kind of shed those walls and allowed me to step into my creative potential that like I, I knew was there, but I didn't know how to access it again. And so just spending a short, dedicated amount of time with it can retrain the brain to access these other states. And if we go through a proper integration, which is really important with plant medicine, the integration, like how do we take what we learned, the insights that are coming up and actually integrate them into our daily yeah. life? And then it's yours to keep. Like you keep these new behaviors. You can't unsee or unlearn these things that come up. And it can be really transformative for a lot of people, depending on on what your goal is or your intention, as we say. I have a feeling my next question is something we could create a whole episode out of, but how do you determine what strain is is for what? Yeah, take, take some work. I would say that's when right. you work with a practitioner. Um, when, you know, plant medicine is so largely illegal in, in most states and we're learning more about it, but it's kind of going through the evolution that cannabis went through when it first mm -hmm. came on the market. It was like, here, just take this. And no one knew what strain or dose right. or anything. And now it's like, if you don't know exactly what color and where it came from, <laughs> not taking it. Um, right. Mushrooms are going through that as well. Um, where it used to be just like, here, here are mushrooms. And now we know like where it was grown. We know what consciousness it holds, what energetic quality it knows. So 
working with a practitioner and having a trusted resource is is where we get the best outcome, right? Because you could potentially take a mushroom that gives you more energy and more thinking and thoughts. And for someone that lives in a very anxious mm. disposition, that's going to spiral them more in that direction. And we don't want to do that. So we want to be really careful and selective about what we're pulling into our energetic field. Right. And then for someone that has more of a depressed state, like there are some mushrooms that are very grounding and very like calming. We don't want to do that more for the person that's depressed, yeah. right? So we want to find that strain that really pairs nicely with where we are now and where we want to go. And that just requires working with a practitioner that knows the strains. Yeah, it, it's funny. I don't, I say funny. It's, it, first of all, psilocybin, if, even for people who have used it or microdosed it or, or taken full, you know, full doses, it's still a mystery to people. To, to, the, to the population in general, it's a mystery. And, and, and it's so, it's, it's, um, it's almost intimidating to, to go, Hey, I was talking about mushrooms, like mushrooms. What, what are you a drug addict? You know, you get that reaction and, and mm -hmm. boy, I tell you what, you want to, you want to start a, a shit storm, discuss mushrooms at the firehouse table, you know, cause that's something yeah. that people just don't understand. They don't, they, they see it as a, through a different lens than, than most, than people who have already either dabbled in it or studied it. It's, it's seen as such an outlaw thing. Yeah. Yeah. But for good I reason. <laughs> like Lauren said, like with weed, I mean, think about if you had talked about marijuana or weed or hemp or something 15 years ago, yeah. people would have thought you were a stoner, you know? Right. And now it's yeah. like totally acceptable, medical, recreational. So maybe in 10 years. Maybe a little like too much so, in my opinion, but. Uh. <laughs> yeah. It, well, that's a whole nother story right there. Then. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole nother story. I think uh, cannabis is starting to be used as like a numbing agent, a dissociative, or at the end of the yeah. day, people are just like, I don't want to feel anymore. I'm just going to, you know, smoke marijuana. So, you know, with plant medicine, specifically psilocybin, it's like, well, do you want to get curious about why you're doing that, about why you're drawn to numbing, about avoiding, about like mm -hmm. not wanting to feel? Because our body is so intelligent. If we can get quiet and actually listening listen to those intuitive thoughts and communication, then we can actually make a change if you want to make a change, right? Like not all of us want to make a change, but if you do, if you're like tired of this pain point, I'm tired of these ruminating thoughts or I'm tired of wanting to numb out or I'm tired of, you know, ruining my day if someone cuts me off in traffic. <laughs> it's just things like that where we have this opportunity to feel something different. And yes, as I said, they're illegal and um, we've had, three waves now of, of plant medicine. The first wave where it started to expand to the public and it got shut down. The second wave, which is like mm -hmm. the Nixon area, drugs are bad, right. they're frying your brain, shut down. Right. And there's enormous research about the healing abilities. And so it's actually finally in this third wave really gaining some ground. It definitely still has to, you know, it has to gain more traction and go through legislation and we need the science to support who it's for. Yes. And I think working with a practitioner or doing it in a medical setting is important because we could do it wrong. We could definitely have poor outcomes. So it's not something that we just want to read an article about and go, hey, let's see what happens. <laughs> it's it's important to be really strategic and thoughtful about it. When you're talking about plant medicine and, and the way you apply it, are you talking micro or full dosing? I primarily work with clients on microdosing protocols. So it's this minimum effective dose, which is something we talked about earlier. It's like, what is the right. minimum amount that we could pull in for the biggest benefits? 
Um, and it's a little bit harder because it's sub-perceptual. A lot of people want to feel something big to know that it's working, but often it's right. like the subtle, small things that we do that really add up to lasting change. And that's really the opportunity with microdosing. And the benefit is you don't have to stop what you're doing. You can still go about your normal work day, be with your family. You know, you're not going to be high and people aren't going to be looking at you funny, right? It's, we can treat it almost as a supplement. It does require like more intention and we have to show up to it and do the work. Right. Um, but the benefit is that we can do it anytime, any, anywhere. Whereas a macrodose, we got to set aside some time. There's a lot of preparation. Set that um, stage. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's there's applications for both. And Renee and I have done both. And um, that's where we're working with a practitioner to decide, like, how how can we help you best? Like, what do you want to get out of this? So I, I know when we started talking, we talked about a, about a three o'clock kind of hard out for you guys. Um, and I, I, this is something we could go in. I, I think I could talk about plant medicine and pick your brains quite a bit. It, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but would you be willing to come back and talk about, have an episode just on plant medicine? Sure. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. I mean, we both have had many experiences, um, personally, and then working with clients, I just think there's so much to explore there. And I think there is kind of something for everyone in that realm. Yeah. I, th I think I just want to do a deeper dive on it because it is a mystery, I think, to the majority of my listeners, because we're in a, a profession where you, you don't, you're not really, it's obviously frowned upon and any kind of, any kind of drug use is really frowned upon. Thankfully, we'd, it, it, in my department, actually, we, they don't test for THC anymore, which is, a, which is a huge benefit for us. Um, so that's, that's because Virginia is a, is a recreational state and it has uh, employee protections, employee, employee protections for use. So you can't be fired for using in, in the state of Virginia. Now that there are certain professions where they still think they can, our county attorney said, nope, you can't do it. So we're taking it out. So we're, we benefit from that. Um, mm -hmm. And then to the north of us, uh, obviously Washington, D.C., where, where mushrooms are de decriminalized and you can actually go into the, the dispensaries and, and buy mushrooms. So uh, it's, there's, there's, some, there's some worlds that are open to us in Virginia and, and the, the DMV area, which you guys are familiar with. Um, yeah. Well, access so, is cool, but I, I would still say exercise caution because yes. because mushrooms hold a consciousness. Like when you see them in nature, they show up when there is an area that needs help, right? They show up when there's decay. They return, you know, dead trees and organisms back to the earth. And so if you're going to ingest that, you want to make sure that you're bringing the right consciousness into your field. And I would say it's not just the strain and the dose. It's also like what hands did it pass through? Because it's sensing the environment. And so mm. there's been situations where I've sourced from people that I, I'm like, I don't want that energy coming into me. So you want to be really, really clear about what you're telling your your physical body. So I don't really know how they do that in the, do they call them dispensaries? We'll just go with that. Yes, we'll call yeah. them dispensaries. Yeah. So uh, I, I would like, I would fully flush that out and make sure you really know like who touched it, where it came right. from, what the strain is, do your deep dive on the strain. And um, I just as a, an easy resource for your audience, Mycology Psychology is the network of practitioners that I work within. And that's a, a safe okay. resource if you want to learn more. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to hold you much longer because I know we're creeping up on, well, not creeping up, we're, we're skidding up to three o'clock really quick here. So first of all, thank you for that conversation. And, and, and let's get back to the plant medicine at another time, if you guys are willing. Um, but I'll wrap up with my final two questions. And I told you at the beginning, I would tell you why I asked for an everyday carry. 
there's a there's a book out there and it's called it's by Tim O'Brien. It's called The Things They Carried. And it's a it's a novel about Vietnam. And it kind of talks about what they take into battle, but also what they bring out of battle. And obviously we're talking about emotional or physical scarring or, or injuries. And so I bastardized that title for the, sh- to the, for the title of my show with the things we all carry, because we all as firefighters or cops or whatever, we carry something into our job, but we carry this shit out of our job as well. Um, and in that, in that vein, I like to ask people, what's an everyday carry? What's something that you don't leave home without? Cause if you do, you're going to feel naked. Is this a physical thing? It can be, it can be a, a manifestation. It can be a feeling. It can be physical. It can be whatever, whatever you want. That's, that's the, that's the fun part, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Should have brainstormed this. <laughs> um, if I go with something physical now, I, I, I work from home, so it's like, okay. I don't know. It's what I, but something that I incorporate almost every single day um this is a device it's a biohacking device called the brain tap and it's using uh light and sound and binaural beats and it has just been the greatest gift for me for the last four years for i'm i'm kind of like type a very um productivity driven go 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 and i think that's a big part of why i got sick in my early 20s i have a hard time bringing up that parasympathetic parasympathetic activity and the brain tap has been a gift for me in that sense. I do 20 to 30 minutes a day. I like to do it after lunch and it just resets my body and my brain and my soul <laughs> for the rest of the day. I feel like a new person. And um you know, if I if I didn't have the device, I would still say like just 20 minutes of maybe some peace and quiet and some breath work and mindfulness. Just okay. having that reminder for downtime is what I need every day. Perfect. Lauren? I have two things. I'm going to go more uh, non-physical just to provide some contrast. But two things came to me. One is my skepticism. I take that everywhere with me. And um, I learned through my human design. Are you familiar with human design? So it's a charting based on where you were born. It's almost Mm -hmm. kind of similar to like an astrological sign, but it's um, I find it's way deeper than that. I I learned through my human design that my skepticism, which is I feel like I can find something wrong everywhere I go. And it takes me a lot of like trust and comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually my superpower. Like I I've learned that I can actually bring good to the world by having this skepticism and like learning through things that I think I can do better or like understanding why I don't trust something so readily. Um, And I think through biohacking, that's really important, like not jumping on a bandwagon, like using discernment and uh, what I call healthy skepticism to understand Mm -hmm. if something is right for me. Um, So that's one. And the other one is just a a playfulness, like a big part of one of the things I learned from a plant medicine journey is in my loss of creativity, I felt quite rigid and um, yes. when things didn't go right or my way, it would really, I would, I would carry it physically for a long time. So I take playfulness and I try not to take things too intensely or personally. Um, so I always try to like infuse laughter if something doesn't go. It's such a great release for the nervous system and it's an, a pattern interrupt. And I would say it's a biohack. It's like a how do I redirect and not let this like sit with me? for too long yeah it's very important that's yeah that's that's huge is to not let it sit and and i mean it, 
how many years have you heard it? Laughter is the best medicine, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Absolutely. so. It feels pretty good. Like you said. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. perfect. All right. So do let me ask for a, a book recommendation from from each of you. What's some what's a book you've read that you think is going to provide some benefit to the audience? Oh, this is one I read a long, long time ago, but it's still kind of like my health Bible is Paul Check's Eat, Move and Be Healthy. Okay. Paul Check is like one of my greatest mentors and a teacher of both of ours. But he wrote a book that I think is accessible to all. Like, how do we just move a little bit better, think a little bit better, start to eat a little bit better? It's not too scientific. Like, I think it really is entry level for anybody. And it really covers the foundation. So like, maybe we don't need to skip to NAD. Maybe we just need to eat, move, and be a little bit healthier day to day. Perfect. Yeah. How about you, Renee? I think I would have to say Boundless by Ben Greenfield. It's almost like the textbook for biohacking. So you wouldn't okay. just sit down and read it cover to cover. But it's like, you know, different chapters for, you know, brain health or gut health. And you can just flip to that chapter. And then it's a really good resource of all the things you can do. And it can be as simple as tweaking your diet to a biohacking device or a supplement or whatever. But I just think it's a really good kind of broad view of biohacking options based off of what you're looking for. Um, makes a great coffee table book. Just flip to it mm -hmm. whenever you have time. Yeah, boundless. Perfect. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's uh it's three oh two, so I I almost got you done done by three. So oh, I'll be good. I'll be good. Thank I you. Knew, so much I knew I knew this I knew it would go on for a while. So I'm 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 very pleased with this conversation. So thank you guys for both very much for, for taking the time and, and uh just sharing some of that time with us today. Yeah, That's thank you. Great. So honored to be here and it is nice to have an extended conversation. Sometimes it's like a drop in the bucket and these things need time, right? They yeah. do need time. Very appreciative. I think I think plant medicine is one that needs time. So I'll reach back out to you guys. <laughs> Definitely we'll see, needs we'll time. see after the yeah. after new, new year, we'll see if we have time to, to actually have a conversation just on that because I'm, I'm fascinated cool. with it and I would love to pick your brains about it. Yeah, I'd love to. All You're right, a great well, host. Go enjoy thank the, you. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You guys go enjoy the rest of your day and uh, enjoy it out there. Thank you very thank much. You. All thank right, you. take care. We're out. Kill this recording. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself, and remember to check in on each other.